<laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. My name is Sarah Jolina Wolcott, and I am your hostess on this sacred learning journey of unraveling, unveiling, and becoming more fully alive at the end of the world as we know it. In this podcast, we offer up to you, dear listener, three forms of episodes to support your journey of remembering and re-enchanting. First, conversations with amazing people. Second, storytelling. And third, myth-casting. This episode is in the form of storytelling. These are real-life stories where I'm sharing a story from my, a part of my journey that led to certain insights and realizations which have significantly shaped my teaching and the work at the Sequoia Summon via learning community which I started. I was not one of those young white women who sought a spiritual transformation in India. Indeed, the thought of traveling to India to seek some nebulous spiritual awakening abhorred me. I was raised in a multi-generational Quaker family in Northern California, where the golden hills, coyotes, and owls claimed me, and where I committed myself to a being I experienced as moving between the stars and the moon in the belly of the valley that held my imagination. My child self referred to this mysterious yet present force as she and her These days, I sometimes refer to her as the Divine Feminine, but most names feel insufficient. Between my relationship to this being who spoke to me in a voice like thunder, which rippled through my body and my vibrant Quaker community, where people helped one another, and no one thought that either my spiritual gifts or my use of the feminine language to describe the divine to be remotely unusual. I believe that I had all of the spiritual resources and insights I needed right at home. My interest in India and indeed much of the global south arose from an early childhood sense that there was something really wrong with the West, not because of any particular spiritual lack but because of something that looked on the outside to be in the world of the secular and the institutional. Let me contextualize this a bit. My father's family, the Wolcotts, are amongst the founding families of the United States, by which I mean they literally co-created this country. My family first landed here from England in 1635, renaming the Rampanag land they land on Dorchester, after the port from which they had set sail, and after founding a small church with a roof they built from the local grasses and what was then the marshlands of what we now think of as Boston, they moved to what is now Connecticut. They remained significantly involved with the governance in the growing colonies. Later, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Oliver Wolcott, signed the Declaration of Independence and went on to become the governor of Connecticut. In his process of governance, 
he spent much time with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, whom the French refer to as the Iroquois Confederacy. Oliver Wolcott was one of the men who was learning from the Confederacy as part of the forming the structural foundations of what would become the United States. One of the many miracles of my life and a source of much inspiration for the work of remembering and reenchanting is that I am now in active working relationships with some of the descendants of the people from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy whom my great-grandfather and other members of my family knew. But that's a story for another day. So there my father is from a founding family, tall, white, well-educated, charismatic, intelligent. And yet what I saw was I saw a man who was constantly struggling with the systems in which he was working. I saw how much he struggled with his co-workers and his bosses to do what he thought would be the right thing to serve the people whom they were trying to serve. And if I, and I thought that if he, who had so much privilege, although I'm not sure if I used that term at the time, if he was struggling so much, and if he had such a hard time, maybe there was something wrong, not with himness only, but with the system. I felt that there was probably something, some I certainly it was nebulous at the time, in the global south, something outside of America that would hold some kind of an answer. You could now, at the same time, my father was going quite sick. As I got older, he developed a very severe chronic illness, which aggravated and interacted with the stress that he was experiencing at work. And on some level, I think I was looking for an elixir to that illness, not just his personal chronic health illness, but the, the larger illness of society, the stuff that he was facing at work, which certainly as a child I didn't fully understand. And I did not think I'd be able to find this answer that I was looking for at home. As my awareness of climate change increased, that feeling that started located in my childhood home, became intertwined into this bigger, more than my family, momentous challenge. The need to go deeper, to search out the root of the illness of this rift between humans and nature, to find some other way through, captivated me. I went into anthropology, religion, art, interdisciplinary studies, international sustainable development as a way of searching for an answer to a question I could barely form. I studied and subsequently led international research projects across 33 countries at the Institute of Development Studies. And the questions we were asking was, how can we reimagine development, poking at some of the very foundations of what is international development, of what is development? I had the opportunity to learn from some of the leading minds in Europe about climate change and about how messed up some of our basic ideas about the economy were. I lived in England long enough to know that while many of my ancestors were English, I most definitely was not. I also trained as a somatic healer and body worker, though I generally dismissed my own immense talent as unimportant. After all, 
What is the point of making a few people feel better when the world is on fire? When the opportunity came to work with the World Bank at an integrated water management project in India, I jumped at the chance. And it was that project that got me to Chennai, India. India was everything southern England was not. Hot, humid, crowded, lots of animals. Tastes and sights and smells that bedazzled me. Just learning to cross the city streets, dodging between cars and motorcycles, autos and cows, monkeys and children, required intense concentration to increase what I soon found were my nascent skills in navigating what I perceived to be chaos. Of course, it wasn't really chaotic. There was an order. I just didn't see it. Before long, in the old red British buildings that hosted the state government offices, just across the way from one of the longest continental shorelines in the world, I came across a network of thinkers and organizers who acted differently than the rest of the bureaucrats I met. They were finding ways of working with government officials and local communities that actually built bridges. The stories I heard during our field work into different parts of Tamil Nadu were remarkable and consistent. The programs that they had developed were enabling the bureaucrats to act first as people and then as bureaucrats. Something magical had happened in this little corner of the government system known primarily for its corruption, not its dedication to service. Who were the designers of this initiative? Before long, I found out they were a loose network of people who had taken it upon themselves to create a more sustainable India. Eventually, I realized that most of them were Gandhians, though none of them told me that explicitly, or rather it was several months before I understood what they were saying. And it would be several years before I realized how radical their ideas about human development and spiritual evolution actually were. But it was enough to get me fascinated. When my assignment finished, I asked my boss in England if I could move to India. He smiled, put me on an assignment of integrated health management, also based in Chennai. So I moved to India. And then I fell in love with a man who could not marry me due to caste-related concerns of his family. And I was so ready to marry him. <sighs> the reality of it all broke upon me one night when I was laying on the roof of the organic farmhouse where I was living, staring at the stars. So much beauty, so far away. I didn't feel I had anyone to turn to. There in the base of the southern parts of India, I felt adrift, alone. With a level of desperation, I reached to the stars, to the divine feminine who has been my companion and my guide since I was a little girl. I opened my mouth and I started to sing to the stars to myself. Song flooded through me. I sang and I cried and I sang. As I was singing, something touched me. I was held. I slept. Not long after, perhaps just a few days, I was in a village at the base of Tamil Nadu's sacred mountains, visiting with a local Delete family, whom a friend of mine was working with. The family was of the Delete caste, 
the lowest caste in India, and they were telling me horrific stories of injustice that had been perpetuated on their family. I was not there in, in official capacity. I was tagging along with a friend who had connections in the area. I knew there was nothing I could do. Listening to his story, it also seemed utterly insufficient, mostly because I could tell from the way he was telling his story that he had not experienced really being heard. But how could I, who could not speak his language, be of any help? How could I help him feel heard? When the time came for me to speak, I started to sing. In my rather broken American folk tradition, I turned his story into a song and sang it back to him. And in that moment, something happened. When I was done singing, and my translator roughly translated the gist of it, an older woman from the back of the hut, whom I had not even seen, came over to me and laid her hands on my head, nodding softly. Everyone in the room had tears on her in their eyes. The face of my host had shifted. The music had touched him. On some basic level, he felt seen and heard. And so I gradually stopped practicing as a social scientist and started singing. For a period of time, I traveled around India, listening to people's stories and turning their stories into songs, singing them back to them. At one point, my journey took me to South India, to the tip of the continent where the oceans mixed together, and I met with a well-known vowel singer. I sang for her and she sang for me, and that was the first time that I experienced singing and thus music as a source of transmission from the spirit world. I experienced how music can itself be a path towards spiritual enlightenment. It was a far cry from my piano lessons as a child or my high school choir practices. Now let's be clear, I am not a particularly good singer. It was my ability to communicate from my soul that was important. I am not always on key. Fortunately, whether or not I was on key was not really the point. The more I sang, the more various teachers came forward, sometimes sadhus who lived simple lives singing only for themselves and for all of creation, not craving stages or fame sometimes villagers, sometimes young musical entrepreneurs. That began my learning about the Indian philosophy around sound. The Brahmin created the universe through vibration. That vibration, song, and sound is at the heart of the dynamic universe. That if you arise before dawn and practice your scales, you can fully partake in the creation of each new day. That singing is a is a path straight into the heart of time, to the sacredness of the innermost soul. And, as I was traveling, I realized that in some of the older communities, those less disrupted by modernization and industrialization, a lot of people sang and danced, and that the singing and the dancing, the rituals and the art, the painting and the craft, well, all were all part of how knowledge was transmitted from one generation to another. And not just any knowledge, but the knowledge of how to live with one another in a sustainable way. Eventually it dawned on me what I was every day embodying. That music and art and ritual and the spiritualness that infuses all of them 
was actually the beating heart of sustainability, a renewal. It was both a source of knowledge and it was a form of knowledge. It constituted an epistemology and an ontology. What I was encountering, experiencing, and partaking in was a form of renewal. When joined with land and water, traditional forms of governance, and dynamic local cultures, it made up some of the ancient wisdom that kept humans alive for millennia. This, this was the elixir I was seeking. It would be several years before my studies would bring me to the term enchanting and disenchanting. Not only is a term associated with magic as in an enchanted castle, but as a term used in political science. Max Weber, when describing the rise of industrialization, said that above all else, what was happen- what was transforming was the world was transforming and becoming disenchanted. In more recent times, philosophers such as Akhil Bilgrami and social feminists such as Silvia Federici agree upon the need to re-enchant our world. To enchant is literally to chant, to sing over something. It is a profound term. When Weber says that the industrialization was disenchanted, he is in part saying that the world has lost its animistic soul, that part that is the source of life, if we understand, as the singers I met in India do, and as much of Western science now confirms, and as many singing church choirs, aesthetic monks, and musical therapists throughout the world confirm that music, especially singing, engages with the very heart of the vibration of life, we see that to enchant, to sing over, is one of the most important forms of sustenance we can engage in which utterly flies in the face of most of the theories of human development, sustainable or otherwise. Most of the models of human development, especially those coming from the work of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, put music and other forms of art as an afterthought, as something is less important than the so-called basic human needs of food and shelter and clothing. But in communities far older and far more sustainable than any theoretical notion of human beings, I saw that Maslow and most of our theories of human development were wrong. Music and art, the work of mu- the work of it, the practice of it, with dance and other forms of art, is actually at the foundation of what it means to be human. To enchant, to let oneself actively and purposefully and wondrously mutter and murmur and rock and shake and pray and sing and howl, is actually powerfully magnificently in line with our basic needs as human beings. Now, back to the journey in India. After living in a village of fakir mystical singers, none of whom spoke English, and trying to learn to play with some of their instruments, such as the duki, which resembles the tabla drum, and the ektara, a one-string instrument you carry in your hand while singing and doing ecstatic dancing, I settled for a time in a small apartment with my teacher-turned-boyfriend in Calcutta, practicing primarily with harmoniums. I spent hours every day singing and playing. It was enough time to actually improve my voice and to decide that this is not what I wanted to do after all, not full-time. I miss the systemic change work. I miss the political activism. After a profound meeting with the goddess Kali in Calcutta and her helping me to leave what was becoming an emotionally abusive relationship, I traveled back down south 
stopping along the way to learn from villages with ages of practices in drawing and painting. A project in Tamil Nadu opened up with a local foundation that was supporting rural women's health, and they invited one of my colleagues, who was quite practiced in the field, as well as myself, to help them develop a monitoring and evaluation program. Instead of using a quote-unquote regular evaluation process, we delved into a local interpretation of an Indic spiritual practice. The team we were designing it for loved it. It fit their ethos and enabled them to express what they were doing far, far better than any of the Western forms of evaluation. It was abundantly clear to me it was possible to work with ancient cultural spiritual traditions to create better ways of living today. We could co-create tools. They were both ancient and new, embedded in spiritual traditions and local practices. I was totally hooked. I saw a path towards sustainability that was not only technology and policy, not only organizing, but worked with a power that was so much bigger than that of governments or corporations or even the military. It was a power that flows through all of life, a power that was as real as at the flowers and the plants blooming around me, a power that could be elicited, elicited in part, although only I think we should be clear in part, through enchanting. And when you are in it, it shapeshifts time and space, the fantastic and the real, what is heard and what is felt, and the sense of what is possible. It feels a lot like magic. And so, to my somewhat chagrin, my journey in India entailed an experience of spiritual awakening. My listening to the spiritual world had totally shifted. I was no longer purely a Quaker. I was no longer purely based in a Christian faith. I had to laugh at myself. It was clear that the work I was doing was not just what we often refer to as secular. It was also clear that the term secular versus religious didn't really make sense. It also did not completely fit into my notion of what was scientific, although it absolutely is as rigorous and substantial as anything in a lab room that I had encountered. Maybe even more so, for I was working with the powers that enable entire human cultures to cultivate and share the knowledge that enables their own survival. One doesn't get much more material than that. And the entry point was spiritual, artistic, and embodied, all of which is practical. I knew then that I wanted to work in this space professionally, and I wanted to work at this from the vantage point of my own culture, I knew I could go far deeper into the Hindu and Buddhist worlds I was already a part of in India, but I was enough of a Quaker, perhaps enough of a Christian, and definitely an American, to know that the answers I was looking for were not only going to come from somebody else's culture. It would have to also come from firmly engaging with my own. And so I returned to the United States and started studying at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. And then my father died. I had found an elixir, something that helped me, at least, answer some of my own questions that led me to leave home, my home country, to begin with. But it was not soon enough to save my father. The question remained, would it be enough to help me to heal myself? Would it be enough to help others? And that leads me to my next story which is also a kind of a teaching. 
that I will share with you next time about how I came to understand that remembering and decolonization is an essential part of re-enchanting and of growing regenerative cultures, and how my father's life and how my father's death transformed my life, and how I shifted away from the question of am I enough? Thank you so much for listening to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. If you are enjoying what you are hearing, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I am always happy to hear from you, dear listener. To continue finding ways to connect the disconnected and go deeper on your own journey of remembering and reenchanting with your communities, your organizations, and your families. I invite you to check out our courses and other community offerings via the Sequoia Samanvaya website. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Though I must admit I spend much more time working with really amazing people than crafting social media. If you want to work with me one-on-one or bring me to speak at your organization or family office, you can find out more at sarahjolina.com.